Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side-by-side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. Today, I am joined by actor, writer, and director Julie Delby. Her work spans nearly four decades dating back to 1985, where a 15-year-old Delpy performed in Jean-Luc Godard's film, Detective. Between then and now, you've seen her in Kislowski's Three Color Trilogy, Blue, White, and Red, Richard Linklater's Before Trilogy, Sunrise, Sunset, and Midnight, or films by directors like Jim Jarmusch in Broken Flowers, or Todd Solondz in Wiener Dog. But acting is only one half of Delpy's story. The other comes as a prolific writer and filmmaker. Some of my favorites being Two Days in Paris, Two Days in New York, and Skylab. Her latest endeavor, called On the Verge, finds her doing a bit of everything. As writer, director, actor, Delpy focuses on four mothers in pre-pandemic Los Angeles, sorting through problems of marriage, work, parenting, and everything in between. Here's a clip from On The Verge, now available to stream on Netflix. Switching career in your 40s as a woman. Switching careers in your 40s as a woman. You know how you have one of those days and it just feels like everything is collapsing all around you? And then all of a sudden, it's just fine again. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. 
Think about Ratatouille. What made him a star? So you want me to be inspired by a male Disney rat? Newsflash, buddy. Your son's moving in. Bye. Do you mind if I ask you a, an odd question? No, go ahead. What scent do you have on? It's intoxicating. Gotta go. Okay, what, what's going on? Are you having a heart attack? God, I'm 46, not 96. I'm having a panic attack. At the top of this talk, we get into where On the Verge came from and why it was made now. From there, Delpy and I talk about everything. Motherhood, growing up in Paris with two actor parents, coming of age in a film industry that objectified her, that made the decision to keep being an artist all the more impressive as she battled misogyny and predation. We talk about the work in the frame and her life outside of it. We talk about our very short, maybe too short time here together in this moment, right now alive and kicking and grateful. Grateful to be doing this show and grateful to Julie for coming on it. I have a feeling you'll understand my gratitude for her and all that she does by the end of this episode. So thank you, Julie. And thank you for being here. Enjoy. Julie Delpy, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. How are you doing right now? For real? For real. Uh, not great. <laughs> I had shingles two years ago, and I've, I still have nerve pain from it, and sometimes it flares up, and it's flared up in the past three days. It's like really a nightmare, just because of stress, by the way. It's stress-induced. Completely. Nothing else. Stress, 100%. What are we stressed about? Work. Work is always stressful to me. I mean, it's not, the actual work is not stressful. Doing my work is not stressful. It's all the stuff around it, the financing, the people liking, not liking, critics, wrecking eight years of work, you know, shit like that for no reason. Can I say the word shit? You can say anything you want. Two and a half years ago, I had a bit of a moment that was very, very difficult. So, you know, it doesn't seem like much because you're like, oh, you know, we can just wreck there career in one critic but you know it's uh it, it gets very difficult like it affects your mental health and then eventually it affects your emotions which affects your stress level which affects your health and then you end up with shingles and pain for the rest of your life so in 2019 you said something to the effect of i may quit movies forever and become a doctor which i didn't believe for a second no, no, but I was, I, I didn't, it's not that I considered it, is that I was so drained by the nastiness of the business in general. Like you fight mountains and you're, you know, you try to go against like, you know, an entire system and then you, you get crushed to the ground, you know, by a couple of people. And it's a hard to, to be someone that express yourself openly about everything. You pay the price. You know, yes, it helps others and things move forward because of it a little bit. No, I'm not saying I've changed things. <laughs> things change because of me. But, you know, it's like a little drop in the ocean of trying to change things, you know. And, uh, and you pay the price, you know. You have to expect that, you know. We talk a little bit about people in the spotlight, mental health, but not, not enough. And not in relation to the amount of work and uh, the amount of 
beating up you get afterwards, you know. Mm -hmm. You know, it affects you. Maybe it doesn't affect you if you're uh, getting a job that involves you just doing your job and you don't give a shit about it. But if you actually evolve yourself emotionally in it, which I do sometimes in my projects because they take so long to make, you know, you definitely um, get hurt. I feel like you do that every time. Yeah, and I think I'm going to stop. I can't take being emotionally involved in something like writing my guts out in a movie, not be credited or stuff like that. I can't just do this anymore. I just can't do it. I have to move on to being just, uh, you know, I'm good at what I do as a filmmaker. I should just take a script, make it a great film and not ha worry anymore about anything. And I think it's going to work out better for me. I really think so. At least for my life, for my shingles, for all my physical manifestation of my anxiety, you know. My husband, my son, my, you know, my friends, you know, my dad, you know, everyone is like suffering because of my suffering, you know, so it's not, it's not nice. But you did put yourself in this new show of yours. Part of myself, yeah. Part of things that I feel, yeah, yeah. And the complexity of being my age or even being a woman, period, or even being in a relationship or having a kid or mm -hmm. working, trying to not destroy your family life with w working too much as a woman because you also have this guilt, I think, as a mother to when you work a lot, you know, you, you have the guilt of not spending enough time with my with your kid or kids. When you worked with Kislowski, he said to you, the trick of storytelling is to take a seed of truth and make it a tree. And as we're thinking about this new show, I'm, I was curious, what was that seed for this project? The seed of truth there is really all those women I, I know, and me including myself in them, that are still figuring things out. Some people have it all worked out, but maybe I'm not talking about those women. And I don't fully believe the people that say they have it all worked out. I don't know what that means, actually. And I don't know those people. Yeah. And, and I think some people are in denial and they think everything's great in their life. And I think one of the characters like that is Yasmin in a way. She's one of them that seems like her life is perfect. She's raising her kids. She's, you know, her husband has money. She's She shouldn't be worried. And she's freaking out all the time because she feels she has no purpose, you know? Because I think for women that are intelligent and active and that have had an active life, to be completely a mother and not, n no other definition of who she is, she doesn't feel good about it. So she's freaking out until she finds a purpose again. My character, it's some other problem. She feels she overex overextends herself. She has their entire family. She's feeding her entire family. You know, she, she doesn't work. She's on the street. I mean, basically, she doesn't have money outside of her work. And her husband doesn't work. How much of you and, and your parenting is in this show? That's one thing I notice about all of my friends. We can agree on so many things, politics, uh, taste on art, films, blah, blah, blah. Parenting, completely different. Like, we could be more different. <laughs> like, why are you doing that? I don't even get involved anymore because I so disagree with most of them that I just leave it. I believe in exposing children to, like, a certain amount of truth that they're not going to fall from a cliff at 15 when they get, find out about the world, you know, or 13, really, or 12 or whatever. Um, you know, um, I feel like, uh, you know, Mitridite, you know, like you give a little poison every day to make sure that they don't end up dying of poisoning one day. So, you know, it's, it's just 
very different. You know, some people shelter their kids completely, you know, so I wanted to show that also in the show, like they all have different ways of dealing with it. And there's a big discussion with uh, Yasmin actually and her son. It's like he's he's exposed to her past, which is Iranian, Khomeini and stuff. And at the same time, he believes in Santa Claus. So he's like this extreme of both. And I just thought it's interesting to dig into that as well. And my parenting is a uh, Pretty much like, uh, yeah, exposing, telling the truth all the time, not sugarcoating it, not bullshitting anything. You know, I protect them from visuals and stuff that are really traumatic. You know, like I wouldn't show my son, for example, what I was shown at 11 in school, which is a Night and Fog, which is a documentary on concentration camp. That's too, I think that was so traumatic. Like I never, I still shake sometimes thinking about it, but it's good that he knows about it. You protect them from some things, but... You still have friends of yours that uh, frown upon your parenting. Of course. Of course. I'm exposing, like some think I'm exposing my son to too much information. He's going to find it anyway. Yeah, he's going to find it anyway. And I feel like lying about it is even worse because then he finds out and he thinks you lied to him about certain things and stuff. I think it's terrible. How much of your parents do you see in your parenting? I wonder because both of them were actors as... You grew up in Paris. Yeah. And this is what you said of them. At home, they created a sense of fairness. They believed in happiness, love, and truth. Their friends, dreamers, poets, painters, were all like them. Yeah, it's true. I was raised with a lot of love, a lot of poetry, a lot of art, but at the same time, a lot of truth, which can be sometimes hard to handle. I don't regret it, though. You know, sometimes I think I'm, I'm pretty traumatized psychologically for a lot of reasons. But, you know, but mostly because I entered the movie business at 14. Even though my dad had PTSD, which was difficult to handle sometimes. Uh, You you had ups and downs and rage issues and stuff, which, by the way, I forgive him completely because he had a very, very, very difficult childhood. So, but yeah, lots of love, art, but almost too much. Like, not too much. You can never have too much, but everything. I was exposed to everything. I mean, I remember my dad doing a play where he was playing a woman, and I remember him changing period pads on stage. (laughs) And I was like, what, nine years old? But as a memory of it, I thought it was funny. Also, half of uh, the other men were playing men on on stage, and I remember them wearing a pink tiny dress, and he never wore underwear, the other guy. And uh, I would always see his penis, and I was always, you know, and I remember... It's shocking, but it was funny, you know, like as a kid, I thought it was hilarious, but a little bit shocking, but funny, you know. I can see how when you're telling this to your friends, they're thinking. Yeah, that's a lot. (laughs) You said most of your PTSD comes from entering the movie business at 14. Oh, yeah. Well, because it's like, you know. You know, right? You're 14. You're very pretty. You don't know. (laughs) No, only one of us did a Godard film as a teen. No, no, I don't know. I grew up in Chicago. No, actually, Godard was not the bad part. Godard was very respectful and very nice to me. No, because everyone knows. It's like I had to battle, you know, one um, producer after one uh, director who wanted to get in my pants, you know, at, at 14, even at 14. You know, and I would make up stories about like, no, I don't like older men because my dad was spanking me. I mean, like making a bullshit <laughs> to just get away from them. You know, I just didn't know what to come up with. You know, so I must have passed for a bit of a crazy person because I was making up stories all the time to get away from them. 
or or I was being aggressive, but aggressive, I figured out that you pay the price. So I would, you know, just figure out ways to get out of situations. And then I would avoid those situations as much as possible because I knew when they were coming. In an interview this year, you said, deep down, I hated my condition as a young actress, this role of muse. Oh, hated it, being the pretty girl. You also said, internally, I was the opposite of my romantic physique. There were clashes. Journalists called me a moralist because I dared to say that it was disgusting for a 50-year-old guy to fuck a 15-year-old girl. Yeah. You know, at the time in France, that happened in France when I started saying I don't find it acceptable for a great 45, 50-year-old director to be with a sometime 13-year-old girl. I was really under attack. It was a different time. Nowadays, everyone's like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. But at the time, it wasn't, you know, I was attacking a system that was, it's okay for a great artist to be with anyone, you know. It was like the Socrates and the Greek time with little boys, you know what I mean? It was like going against that. So it was one thing, you know, and so I left for the U.S., you know, because I was like, you know, I can't deal with this stuff. And the U.S., of course, I arrived and I, one of the first person I met in the U.S. was had been abused by Weinstein. That was Catherine Kendall? Yes. You're well informed. I said it. So, yeah, Catherine, who's, who's a wonderful girl, and she told me the story and I was like, oh, God, OK. But I knew it wasn't like shocking to me because I knew that story a million times. I mean, like, not that it happened to me because I was always able to get away from it. Like it happened to me once when I was 13, when the f first casting, you know, the guy would ask me to take off my clothes and I run off, uh, you know, and I was very, very clear. And I remember crying in the subway and with my dad who wanted to go punch him. And, uh, and I say, no, forget it and stuff. He's like, you don't have to do this to become a good actress. You don't have to do this to, you know, my dad was really supportive of me and a super feminist. So luckily I had a feminist dad, which is also gives you two sides of the story. Like it's not, I have no Nothing against men. I have absolutely nothing. I love men. And the greatest supporter of women are men sometimes. And my dad was incredible. Can I ask you a human question about this? By the way, for people listening, every time I start to say something, Julie looks at me like she's looking at someone who's never said a sentence before <laughs> with an amount of skepticism that I can only remember in childhood from my mother. So it's good to be brought back to that. When you're a teenager, you do these films in Europe, Detective, Bad Blood, there's a couple others. And most of those experiences are, are not particularly good. Some of them are unsafe with volatile, dangerous people acting in ways that are wildly inappropriate then and especially now. What I want to know is what in those experiences told you that you should continue acting? I guess my family and my upbringing that are a lot of love and a lot of strength in that love, you know, love is very strong, you know, in my family, even though it's a crazy kind of love. So it gives you a lot of strength and a lot of confidence in life, even though I'm not so confident sometimes. It gives you a, a strength to keep on going. There's a French expression that says the caravan is going forward and the dogs are barking, meaning you, you move forward, right? And every round around you is trying to bug you, but you just keep on going. And so I always, you know, kept this in mind to keep on going no matter what. To keep on going no matter what reminds me of how The Guardian described you in 2012. 
They wrote, in spite of her neuroses, her occasional panic attacks, and her absent-mindedness, when it comes down to it, Delpy is like a dog with a bone. When she couldn't find funding for one of her movies, she approached every backer in town until she drummed up the money. And while that's about the films you directed later on in life, I think it speaks to your kind of remarkable tenacity. I know, but the more people know it, the more they fight me harder because they know I'm, I'm, I don't give up easily. They want to prove that they're, they have a bigger dick than me, you know? That's like so annoying. And the more it goes, the more people are fighting me and I'm fighting a system. And people don't like people like me in general. They don't like people like me. They want people that well, I like comply. You. No, because you're different, right? But you know, you're not you're not a <laughs> you're not different. You're weird. No, I'm not saying that. No, no, but I mean the people in the system, the people in the system, you're not in a system in the Hollywood system, right? I think the people in the system want people that comply, right? There's nothing more dangerous than freedom in a system. Someone's free. You don't want free people because you don't know what they're going to do next. You know, it's funny, this image of someone strong and free means trouble when it's not true. You know, I always shoot my film on time. I never spend extra money, but I'm usually compliant to most of the issues and understanding to situations. That I'm tenacious doesn't mean that I'm impossible. It's, it's very weird how people, but I think being a woman doesn't help. I know we're trying to get over that shit a little bit, but it's still there that if you're not cute and friendly, you're a difficult woman and therefore you're unlikable, you know. Did that reputation that you're talking about, someone who's tough to work with? I don't have this reputation, but some people before they work with me, they're like, okay, what's going to happen? And then they work with me and they're like, oh, okay. Right. But didn't that come from a bunch of lies in the 90s where, where, where people were making advances that are not... Yeah, of course. I mean, the minute you say no to a man, it's very complicated after that for you. Like, if you say, I remember, I, I actually didn't even say no. I just told someone I knew at the time who was telling me how he was casting his film. And I say, that's kind of gross, right? And he's like, no, that's the way. And, you know, he was like this way of, you know, flirting with people and kind of implying that maybe you they're going to get some. <laughs> maybe not, but maybe, but you have to, you know. I remember a manager at the time told me something pretty crazy. She says, leave the door open, Julie. I'm not saying to do anything, but leave the door open. Give them a ch sense that there's a possibility. That was the interesting uh, thing to say. And that was a woman who said that? Yeah, manager. You know, it's just very interesting to me that was not acceptable to me. And that was such an accepted thing in a system, right? A system. So, because we're talking about a system, not one or two people. It's a system. Everyone is in on, more or less. So, so that was tough. And that got me a reputation to not accept that system, right? And uh, this guy told me, I remember very well, he said, uh, he said, uh, yeah, that's how it is and you will never succeed. And da, 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 da. he was very aggressive suddenly. And he got me a reputation. And I was not saying no to him specifically. Actually, he was not offering. But just the fact that I was saying that it's wrong, he was not happy about it. You left Europe to get away from these kind of older, perverse men. Yeah. And then you came to America to find... More. <laughs> to find more. <laughs> to find more, but more hidden. You know, it wasn't like, 
ooh, this director's new girlfriend is 14 years old and everyone is embracing it like it was in Europe. It was more like under the radar kind of thing. And yet you still felt like, I have art that I need to make. Yeah, that's the weird thing is that I kept on going, but with really dark period of my life where I drank a lot. When was this? In my late 20s, early 30s, I drank quite a lot. But the good thing is that I got sick right away, almost right away. Like I got pancreatitis, which is inflammation of the pancreas. So I was going to die if I kept on drinking. So it, it kind of deterred me, you know. <laughs> I've always had that. Like I do something. I try to do something. I, I, I tried to do drug once. I was hospitalized for two weeks. Um, you know, I, ca I cannot do drugs. I cannot drink. <laughs> I'm trying to be a bad person. And then I, you know, it's always like that in my life. A little something that helps me out. You know, it's, it's nice. It's actually nice. We'll be right back after a quick break. Hello, hello, Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History. If you've watched a professional tennis match recently, you'll know that fans had this amazing new tool at their disposal. It was created by the consulting company Infosys and the Association of Tennis Professionals. It's an immersive 3D viewing experience for tennis fans, which allows them to watch matches from new angles, get real-time statistics, and better understand the inner workings of the game and its athletes. Basically, a completely new, data-driven way to appreciate a tennis match. It's been a huge hit, and I'm proud to say that the Infosys Tennis Platform earned first place in the Customer Experience category at the Unconventional Awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event held at Mobile World Congress in Las Vegas that celebrates customers who've boldly innovated for the sake of meaningful change. And I think it's important to point out that innovation like this doesn't just require a great idea and exploit some great underlying technology. It takes courage. Because tennis is a game with a long history and some pretty powerful traditions. I mean, you can only wear white at Wimbledon. Still, it's the 21st century. And here was an idea that said we can dramatically change the way a fan watches a match. We can feed them data. We can allow them to see things they could never see before with the naked eye, or even conventional camera angles. If you want to turn a world upside down, you have to have a pretty strong backbone. That's a lot of what the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards are all about. Finding people and companies who show that kind of boldness. I encourage you to enter. It's a fantastic event and a great way to be recognized for your brave, outside-the-box thinking in front of the industry's most influential leaders. And an even better way to say, I told you so. You can enter by July 31st at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. As listeners to this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds has the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel card. 
Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. This is your chance to reignite some old musical passions or pick up an instrument for the first time. Connect with more than 100 of the world's best teachers and musicians. You'll get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 a month, less than a single private lesson. I mean, why do we do Broken Record? Not just because we love hearing from great musicians. We do it because we think that there is something beautiful about the appreciation of music. Don't you think we need more of that in our lives these days? That's the mission of Musora, to inspire, educate, and connect musicians. Enjoy unlimited personal support, weekly live streams, student lesson plans. It's like having a personal music teacher, only much, much better. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com, to start a new musical journey today. When you look back in, in those early years, despite all of this kind of nastiness surrounding you and the industry, is there some piece of work that you're proud of? I have to say Before Sunrise was a film that, you know, Yes, we didn't get credited, Ethan and I, and really, legally, I can guarantee you, if you look at the original screenplay and what Ethan and I wrote, there is no doubt we would be writers. That was very painful for many, many years, actually, not to be credited, because I wrote very personal thing about love and romance that are iconic, I think, to people that like the series and that are very specifically written by me and Ethan, actually, but really specific things like space between two people or like the the, the phone, fake phone scene, the, the first film. The other ones we got credited, so it's it's not a problem. Are you kidding? I've stole like half of my ideology around romance from your writing in that movie. Oh, really? I mean, when I was 20. When you were 20? Yeah. Like when you were flirting? Oh, great. No, thank no, you. No, I completely blame you. <laughs> Good. No, but <laughs> thank you. I grew out of it, of course. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, me too, actually. <laughs> yeah, actually, actually, by putting them in the film, it probably... Like it teared it out of my right. me, and I, actually, I probably lost my romanticism by putting it in that film. No, no, it's still there. It's still there. I mean, I fell in love not so long ago, eight, nine years ago. So you know, it still happened in my forties to fall in love, really in love again. So that wasn't bad. Um, <laughs> yeah. So 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 it was one thing, but doing that film was nice because it first of all, it, I was able to write, which was a f- something. And my writing, my specifically the scenes that I had written were pointed out. It really helped me want to keep on going with the writing. I had written before, but not so lucky. I was not able to make my early films, which were also romance. Um, And then I did Two Days in Paris, which was a romance, but with a more quirky version of a romance for me, I love doing my own stuff. And and sometimes I meet people like Todd Solons where, you know, I see the writing and I'm like, perfect. I can say those lines. This is real, funny, dark, you know. So some people I, I want to work with still. So It almost seems like you... I try to avoid the nastiness, you know. It, yeah, it seems like you wrote your way away from the nastiness. Yeah, I mean, I write a lot because it's it helps me also cope with... Um, I just finished my film that I was writing since I'm 30 on Hollywood, which is called 
two degrees of fucking separation because if you fuck someone in the business, you fuck, you have two degrees. It's pretty funny. And it's called, or how to burn all your bridges in Hollywood. <laughs> I don't know if I'll ever find money for this one. It's very, very, very dark, very nasty, fucked up. And it's very funny too. And it's crazy. And it's kind of like a horror film. So we'll see if I ever make that one, but it's done at least. The process of making those films you're talking about, Two Days in Paris, Two Days in New York, there's a film before that that's completely improvised, but I'm not going to count that one. Oh, yeah. Looking for Jimmy. Really weird. <laughs> the process of making those movies, to bring it full circle, it seems like they've taken a lot out of you. Yeah. Yeah, that's the problem, you know, because it takes so long to make them. My energy. Also, I'm editing most of the time. I edit. I spend a lot of time in the editing room. And I, as I say again, we're full circle. I want to be less, put less of me in things. So... It's not as exhausting. But at the same time, you know, it's a, I think to not be passionate about things can take energy out of you. So I don't know if it kills me or if it gives, keeps me alive. Every time an article is written about you, they call Ethan Hawke for comment. He must be sick of it. And Ethan Hawke, terribly sick of it, <laughs> gives the same response. It's two words. Do you know what he says? What? She's crazy. He says that? Yeah. And then you said recently in response... He thinks I'm crazy because I'm a very intense person. When I write or do something, I don't do it halfway. I don't let go easily. I don't give up easily. But he's funny because he says I'm crazy. But then when we're in private, he says, you're not that crazy. You just seem crazy. We, we don't know the deeper part of you. Because as you're talking to me, you can probably sense that I'm intense. I talk a lot and stuff. But... The side of me, I think that's, I'm very settled inside also. I'm not, I'm not a loose person that doesn't know where she is. You know what I mean? I'm not, you know, I'm not crazy in that sense. I'm not, <laughs> you know what I mean, right? Like people that are fragile, that are, you know, that, that can break, you know, I'm not that. And I think craziness is when people don't, are not attached to the ground. You know, I'm very grounded in so many ways. First of all, I love to eat, which is a sign of <laughs> being well. You know, I'm not I'm not a crazy person in the sense that I'm lost. I don't think you're crazy at all. Okay, thank you. <laughs> I brought that up because He's crazy too, but in other ways. I love him. I love him. I stop I stop cutting you off. I'll never let you talk. It's my podcast. It's talk quickly with you. <laughs> I brought it up because this line you have, when I write or do something, I don't do it halfway. It means something to me. I don't let go easily. You said that two months ago. Yeah. But that's why I want to try to not get too involved and see how that works for me. It won't be bad. It just won't be me, me, you know. Does that mean you're not acting? I wouldn't be acting, which is great for me. And I can do really good stuff. I mean, I did a film in France called The Sky Lab where I have a much smaller part. I play a mother and there's many characters. And I have to say, to be directing... First of all, I did a really good job and it didn't feel, I mean, it, it wasn't a, a really good job. I, I did a job that I was happy with. Why can't you say you did a good job? Because it sounds pretentious, no? I did a good job that I was happy with. I shouldn't say good job. Are you kidding? We have men making movies nonstop talking about how great they are. <laughs> okay. Yeah, but as a woman, you have to be really careful. Not here. How you express yourself. I think you can be proud of the work. Really? Thank you. Thank you. You're so sweet. 
I can't believe I was, I'm not expecting so much sweetness. It's making my stomach growl. <laughs> Maybe I should have had that croissant <laughs> after all. What were you expecting? No, no, I'm not expecting. But listen, I'm so much in the work that I don't think of anything of myself, what I achieve or not achieve or, yeah, tunnel vision. But that's my only way to move forward, you know. Do you feel like your best self in the work? Do you feel most alive and, and maybe happiest when you're in the process of acting or directing or editing or writing rather than everything outside of the frame? No, because actually I'm very passionate about cooking, about taking care of my kid, about playing, about gardening, all other things. It's music. It's when I draw, when I paint, even though I'm not good at it. I uh, do it in a way that's uh, that makes me passionate about it, which actually drives people crazy sometimes because, like my husband, for example, he tells me, why don't you chill and just do this to relax? And then I turn it into a passion. It's, it's really like I, I get passionate about things quickly, you know? The only thing I don't get passionate about is sports. I just, I'm never passionate about sports. <laughs> no matter what I do, I don't like it. <laughs> I really hate exercising. Who was it, like smoking a cigar? <laughs> Uh, Churchill. <laughs> I compare myself to Churchill. That's how big of an ego I am. Yeah. I'm about his weight. So, yeah, <laughs> I'm getting there. My goal is to look like Churchill. You won't call yourself a good filmmaker, but you'll compare yourself to Churchill. Yeah, that's all. Only visuals. Like, I think I look like him a little you know, bit. No, can you stop that? <laughs> I feel a certain kinship with throwing yourself into everything you do. And I wondered if that in part comes from your persistent fear of death, because I find that it's a little bit the reason why I do what I do. I mean, I, I think if you don't have a consciousness of your own mortality, you don't really enjoy each second like it's the last. And I do. I do live every moment that way. More and more, actually. That's scary. And you'll see, it gets more. If you have this kind of energy, I think it gets more as you get older. And my dad's like that, too. Every second is like a juicy moment. It's exciting. I mean, I, I can't say that my life was half-lived. It's good, right? Do you enjoy life that way? You couldn't live it any other way, right? I, I don't think I have a choice. Yeah, I don't think we... Yeah. And it's a curse and a blessing at the same time. No, no, I feel it's a curse. Yeah, but there's that good side to it also. Now, I have this scene for us to watch that I think speaks to what we're talking about. Okay. This is from the film Before Midnight from 2013. Well, when I think of Elias, what I miss the most about him is the way he used to lie down next to me at night. Sometimes his arm would stretch along my chest and I couldn't move. I, I even held my breath. But I felt safe, complete. And I missed the way he was whistling, walking down the street. And every time I do something, I think of what he would say. Well, it's cold today, wear a scarf. <laughs> but lately, I've been forgetting little things. He's sort of fading, and I'm starting to forget him. And it's like, like losing him again. So sometimes I make myself remember every detail of his face. 
the exact color of his eyes, his lips, his, his teeth, the texture of his skin, his hair. That was all gone by the time he went. And sometimes, not always, but sometimes, I can actually see him. It's as if a cloud moves away and there he is. I could almost touch him. But then the real world rushes in and he vanishes again. For a while I did this every morning when the sun was not too bright outside because the sun somehow makes him vanish. Yes, he appears and he disappears like a sunrise or a sunset or anything so ephemeral. Just like our life. Hmm? We appear and we disappear. And we are so important to some but we are just passing through. This moment was uh, written for, um, basically I wrote it thinking of my mother. Um, and this idea that people, you know, they also vanish from your memory a little bit, which is the hardest part, I think. And um, yeah, this idea of being here for such a short time. I'm sorry, it's just the only thing that I get emotional about is my mother. It's silly, yeah, 12 years ago, but it just doesn't go away. <laughs> I presented that scene because that idea of just passing through is kind of what we've been talking about this whole conversation. And, and I'll say, I watched the film. I was 17. It was right around the time that my grandfather passed away. And I remember watching that, and, and it was the first time I felt like I could process what exactly had happened. I don't want people to think that I'm crying because it's, I'm crying to my own writing. I'm not crying to my own writing. I'm crying to basically the, the idea of processing this, um, the loss, you know, of people you love. Sorry about your grandfather, by the way. I had just lost my mother. A few, I, I think I wrote this a couple of years after I lost my mother. Uh, because it was obvious that also the image was fading at times, you know, that it was harder to keep this exact memory of her. And uh, But thank you for noticing it, because in a way, you know, I'm not saying it. I'm not saying those lines, even though I wrote them for her. I thought it was more appropriate for a woman and a man uh, who lost her husband to talk about it. Uh, and I thought it was beautiful for an older woman to say it. Yeah, the, the idea of just passing and also this uh, this thing I wrote about uh, still there, still there, still there, and then gone is a reference to that as well, obviously, at another part of the film, looking at the sunset. And it's funny because I found the video that inspired me to write this recently again. And it's the sweetest video of me with my little boy. And I'm looking at the sunset and it's going away. I mean, and the sun is going away and I say still there, still there. And then I say to him, gone. And he, the funniest part is that he panics at the vision of the sun being gone. And I, it's such a profound image, in a way, of a little child. That's even harder to imagine. Because that is not that, that, that the idea that this little boy suddenly had this sense of something is going to be gone, you know, and... But then I tell him it's coming back tomorrow. 
but he's still scared of it's so silly but it's so profound at the same time and being scared of death is part of it's a living hell really i'm sorry i'm just you don't have to say sorry i uh I'm sorry. Oh, God. I hate crying. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so emotional. I don't know. I must be. What what uh, day of the month is this? Not supposed to happen anymore. I'm trying to lighten this silly thing. But I don't know. It is a very difficult thing, too. Also, when you have a child, it's a great thing. But it's, it's also something heartbreaking is this concept of uh, he'll be gone, too, you know. So it's it's uh, it's not an easy it's it's a reality. I'm sorry. I made you cry. I'm sorry. <laughs> you okay? It's just a reality of, for everyone and for everyone. And, and we're lucky because we're in an environment that protects us in a way many times, but not always. So I assure you, people listening are plenty familiar with my crying. So okay. Okay. <laughs> it's okay. Okay. That's good. That image is haunting. The sun going down and you're child there it's quite beautiful actually because it's very sweet it's very pure and um and i just can't uh i i have this video and i cherish it because it's so special and you really see in his in his eyes this feeling of something ending for the first time he understands it you know he comprehends it and and it's interesting i think my son has a deep understanding of life and death and people and they always tell me how much empathy he has for others, which is a good thing, and especially in this world nowadays. But maybe it's going to hurt him eventually. But anyway, that's weird that you picked up that thing because um, I somehow had a feeling that people didn't even notice that monologue. And I was almost sad. I was like, oh, I wrote it in this film, and now, you know, it's kind of not, not really noticed, you know. And it was so much about my mother that, you know, I, I wanted it to stand out but she she says it beautifully yeah. by the way anyway oh, is my nose running no i'm good <laughs> you want to really make me it's good to cry it feels good actually actually my my nerve pain is a little better the way you're describing your son someone who's empathetic who you hope the world doesn't do what it does it reminds me of how you've described yourself you said myself I'm a good pair, incapable of calculation, so much so that I sometimes have to remind myself not to let myself be stepped on. Yeah, I, I have to protect myself. And maybe that's why I'm so hyper and strong and have this personality, you know, um, is really to protect myself. My son will be, I think, stronger. I don't know. He's, he's so sensitive to, to others. It's, it's really shocking. To, but since he's little, uh, I've doctor teacher they like but at the same time he's strong and he protects himself so I'm not completely worried for him you know one day I mean I was bullied a lot as a kid so you know and not that protected at the time it was another era but it's a different world but I, I'm worried each time that he, he, I hear that a kid is telling him something nasty or something because he's so sweet but I think he has the the weapons he's a little more stable I think and he has the weapons to fight back. I think, I hope so. I think that may come from you. Yeah, because I, you know, I always take his side. By the way, the, I had the weapons to fight back too, in a way. And and also it's because I love him so much. I think he feels so loved. It gives him the confidence to, and also I tell him, I say, you know, if a kid bugs you, I'm going to go and punch him. <laughs> Even if he's five-year-old. 
I'm real good. I told him, I remember once we were on a walk and he had told me this kid was bullying him and it was like some nature walk with other kids. And I see the kid telling my son, you ugly, you stupid, like that. And I'm like, I get the kid. He was about five years old. I'm like, what did you tell my son? <laughs> the teachers were like, uh, you can't talk like that to children. He's like, no, he's bullying my kid. Like I was very straightforward. And actually later the parents apologized because they realized the kid had an issue. He was bullying other kids too, not just my kid. But, you know, it's like you got to, you know, I don't, I don't want my kid to be bullied and I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be there for him every time. I will protect him until I'm not there. Walk me through what a day well spent looks like for you. Oh, you know, the truth is I love creating but there's no, nothing I love more than my kid. So spending a day with my kid doing something creative and fun and playing and having fun and laughing is a day well spent. I mean, ideally is writing before everyone wakes up, doing something I love creatively, preparing breakfast, feeding my family, my husband and my son, and then feeding them more and feeding them more again at night, you know, and cooking and make them happy with my food and playing and having fun and, and feeding friends at night on top of it. Family, friends. A lot of cooking going on. A lot of cooking. <laughs> a lot of love given through the food. For people listening and for you and I here, the goal of this show is to create a time capsule of the moment we're in. And if you and I are to listen back on this in five years. Yeah. What do you want for yourself? Um, well, to be around, to for my kid to be well, my family to be well, people I love to be well, and for me to be well, to not be blind, not be um, with health issues that are too big to manage. The little ones, the pain and the stuff I can manage, but not the big, big ones. And, uh, and to still be creative, you know, being able to express myself in some ways. And it doesn't need to be films or writing or it can be anything, music or... But I think if I'm well enough, I would always do that. I don't need to wish that. I think you're stronger than you give yourself credit for. I'm not as strong as it lo I, I look. I'm also fragile. I'm, I'm a, actually half and half of both. I see someone who's made a lot of films under conditions that were not easy. Someone who's still here in this moment, trying to say something else, something new. And uh, the film says that we're here passing through. And I, I just want to say, I am grateful to be passing through with you in this moment. Thank you. You okay? Mm -hmm. I'm good. Thank you. That, that was a very nice compliment. You're upset about the compliment? <laughs> yeah, pissed off. <laughs> I'm angry. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm very happy. Thank you so much. You're very kind. Julie Delby. Thank you. Stay safe. Yes, you too. That's our show. Special thanks this week to Kendall Heininger and Ruth Bernstein. 
I'd also like to thank the team at Netflix and, of course, Miss Julie Delpy. Her latest project is called On the Verge, and it's now available to stream on Netflix. If you enjoyed today's episode, you'd probably enjoy some of my favorites with folks like Porna Jagannathan, Werner Herzog, Miranda July, Laura Dern, Glenn Turman, and Holland Taylor. You can find all of those and more on Spotify, Apple, Google, and Stitcher. If you listen to our show on Apple, please rate and review. If you don't, share the show with a friend, a family member, anyone that you think may like what we do here. This is an independent program that depends on you to keep going. And keep going, we shall. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TalkEasyPod. Our executive producer is Janik Sabravo. Our associate producers are Caitlin Dryden and Nikki Spina. Our lead editor is Andre Lin. Our editor for today's episode is Caitlin Dryden. Our assistant editor is Clarice Guevara. Our illustrations are by Krisha Shenoy. Video and graphics by Ian Chang, Derek Gaberzak, Orion Wong, Ian Jones, Isabel Primavera, and Ethan Seneca. Special thanks to Patrice Lee, Kaylin Ung, and Callie Syringas. And the show is produced by Caroline Reebok. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you back here next week with Nikki Giovanni. Until then, stay safe and so long. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side-by-side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at NerdWallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter.